Well, gang, good morning. I just got called a liar before I came up here for saying I was allergic to peanuts. But uh, I was also told earlier today it's all right if I, if I spout a little heresy since I was up late watching the Astros last night. Um, did I understand that right? No. Oh. <laughs> uh, hopefully it does not come to that. Um, so uh, we're in Luke ch- chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 17 this morning. Uh, and, and as you're heading there, I kind of want to just ask this overarching question to begin with. How do you measure success as a Christian? Is it outward morality? Or is it outward and inward morality? Is it memorizing bunches of, of Scripture? Is it amazing attendance at church? Is it hours of, of Bible reading during the week? Is it, is it how many people you've led to faith and you've gotten to see God work that way? Parents, is it, is it how well behaved your children are? Or how well behaved they are in front of other people? Uh, or, or how many catechism questions maybe they can recite? If we broaden this a little, what, what's ministry success, you know? Is it, is it measured in the attendance at a, a Bible study you host or you lead? Is there a, a Sunday attendance number where if we walked in here one day and we'd be like, okay, that's success right there. That's success. What, what in your life as a Christian would, 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 you give, would give rise to your heart to, to rejoice in success? To those questions I've, I've just asked, you notice, none of them are bad things. Right? We tend to start thinking they are on some level, but they're not. Really, we'd love to have this building filled on a, a Sunday morning, bursting at the seams. You know, biblical morality is a proper goal for us to have. Reading scripture is something we, we want to do. It's good for our, our souls. But we may need to shift our focus of, of what success looks like as a Christian and what success looks like in, in, in ministry. And, and that's what Jesus is going to get at in the first part of the passage we're looking at this morning. And, and so before we read that, though, let me just remind you, last week, uh, he sends 72 disciples out, two by two, right, into towns and places, and off they go to, to heal and to proclaim the gospel, the kingdom of God, right, to announce that the, Jesus is the Messiah and, and the promise has arrived. And, and, and so they've been sent out to, to do this ministry, and, and now we're going to read about the return, right? This is this is one of those kind of, you watch the time-lapse video, right? It's just the next verse, but you can imagine there was some time between these things. Um, and, and as they return, right, just the first, we're going to read just the first four verses to start with, and then we'll read the other four a bit later uh, as we get to them. So let's begin with Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> ch- uh, chapter 10 again, right? Uh, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying... Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, our minds and our hearts can only reject or be apathetic to your word unless you 
are at work within us to receive it and to love it and to seek it and to obey it. Help us to understand what we've just read and what we'll soon read a bit later. Help us to take your word into our hearts, feeling the full weight of it with joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in this first section, uh, you know, but before Jesus said, said uh, uh, before he sent out his disciples last week, remember that one of the things Jesus said was, I, I send you out, you remember what it was? As, okay, it's been one week, you can do this, right? As lambs into the midst of wolves. And you hear something like that, and I think if you don't already know what's coming, there's this sense when you kind of expect that the disciples are going to come back, and they're going to be mourning the death of some of them, or they're going to be so discouraged by the persecution they face and the hatred and all the things of failure. And yet what we find here is that the mission that Jesus sends them out on is a massive success. And the 72 are ecstatic as they share these stories with each other. And they share these stories with Jesus that's going on. And, and, and you know, we get this little summary. And I imagine there are so, uh, so many stories they were telling. Some of them funny. I've been around guys long enough to know that, you know, someone was probably sharing a room with a goat that was bang all night. Or some old man who passes gas in his sleep. And, and, and we don't hear any of those stories, right? Because those aren't the important stories. What we do know for sure here, though, is that the disciples are filled with joy when they share about the success of the mission. And you see there what they say to Jesus. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I think the response we expect here is is how happy Jesus is that they get to experience this. Or, or yes, of course that's what's going to happen, right? Something along those, that, that, that line, and yet as is often the case, we're seeing in Luke over and over again, Jesus' response is not what we expect. In fact, his response kind of, kind of brings the mood down a bit at this moment. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. To, to understand this, first of all, we've got to acknowledge that Satan is a real being. And I know that can be a little weird for us because we're, we're mostly okay with, with the idea of our own sinful nature, right? We, we are aware of how vile we can be. Uh, but, but as modern Christians, we, we tend to just pretend Satan doesn't exist or it's just an idea of some sort. Yet... Jesus could not be more clear that Satan does exist and that Satan means to do us harm, tempting people in suggestive ways and other ways uh, at times as well. In other words, Satan is an enemy of God and he's an accuser of God's people who's very real. Satan was created a beautiful, powerful, powerful angel and yet he rebelled against God and his punishment was, was banishment from the presence of God and, and banishment from the glory of God. And when Je- Jesus says here that he saw Satan fall from heaven, it, it's a little difficult to understand what, what he's referencing here because he could be talking about a couple of different things. He could be talking about the fall of Satan in the past. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, tells the story of that. And in the first line, this might sound awfully familiar to you because of our passage today. Uh, it says this of Satan, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And so we might be looking backwards to the fall of, of Satan. 
But, but Jesus could also mean the future downfall of Satan. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, uh, begins with this, which will also sound a bit familiar. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And Jesus could also just broadly be using this to reference Satan's ongoing defeat, especially as they returns from the, the 72 return from healing the sick and proclaiming the good news and, and seeing the reign of Jesus begin to spread. And so then Jesus continues and he says this, he says, I have... I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now this harkens back to what is called the pronto gospel or proto gospel. Anyone ever heard that? It's one of those terms you, you, you hear in some studies. That it, it's basically the idea of it is this, that the first place that the gospel is ever seen is immediately after the, the fall in the garden in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, to Satan, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and so this is the image here, right? The, the bruising of the heel causes pain. That's Jesus on the cross, right? There's damage. But the bruise to the head destroys absolutely complete victory. That's Christ's victory over Satan, over sin, over death itself. Uh, and thus, we, we, we see here this, this image of snakes and scorpions in verse 19 is this, this reference, right, to, to Satan and to his demons. Now, some Christians have taken this verse in a really bizarre way. Um, the, the idea that since snakes and, and uh, scorpions can't hurt you, they, they take it absolutely literal with a, along with a passage in Mark, uh, that there are churches today that will handle venomous snakes, right? Carrying rattlesnakes. You can picture me with one right now, right? That's not how I would hold it. It would be dead by the tail. Um, but handling live venomous snake, snakes, and you can't make this up. Uh, there are Right now, about 125 churches in the United States who do this, and the reason is to prove their faith, that they can't be hurt by these snakes if that's the case. Now, there was one that made the news about four or five years ago, 2014. Uh, Jamie Coots, a charismatic pastor in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, was bit by a rattlesnake during the worship service, and he absolutely refused the antivenom despite it being there available to him, uh, and he died. And this church continues to handle snakes to this day. Um, so, small bit of application, don't play with rattlesnakes, right? That's not how we prove our faith. Now, we ought to rejoice, right, when, when, when God gives victory over Satan and sin. That's what this is really getting at. It's not about handling snakes. Uh, you know, we ought to be rejoicing them. We rejoice when people come to faith. At the proclamation of the gospel, we rejoice when a, when a sister in Christ is able to resist some powerful temptation in our life. We rejoice when a brother in Christ brings a secret sin out into the light and repents of it. We, we rejoice when we see success in the ministry that God has called us to. But, but part of what Jesus is doing here with these disciples, right, and part of why it's recorded here for us is this warning to them because he sees their hearts and he sees that spiritual success might lead them into pride. I don't know that this is a secret, but Christians can quickly become prideful by success. Unfortunately, this is proven in the news way too often. 
Um, J.C. Ryle, who I quote often and is called the last of the Puritans uh, by many, he, he reminds us, never forget that a time of success is a time of danger for the Christian soul. That, that's the case for these disciples, these 72 right here. Right? It, it, we don't see them actually called out for pride. It's not necessary that they are prideful, or all of them, or as prideful as they could be. But Jesus certainly sees it coming, certainly sees the temptation there with them right now. It's, it's kind of like when you're driving down the street, and the person in the passenger seat yells out, Dog, right? Because there's a dog in front of you. And you haven't yet hit the dog, right? But the reason they yell out is because they want to prevent you from hitting the dog. That's kind of what's going on here. It's not that they are so prideful yet, but, but Jesus is stepping in to prevent that from happening. Um, he's heading it off before it's fully ingrained in them. So now I, I want you to see something really interesting in the passage. I hope you have it open in front of you right now. Look at verse 17, because we, we almost miss it because they do tack on the phrase, in Jesus' name there, right? And, and again, anytime we tack on that, we, we almost can say anything we want at that point. Uh, but look at verse 7. They're so joyful because what's it say? Even the demons are subject to us. They're amazed at the power they have as they go out there. They're excited to have. And, and, and you can imagine that, right? This is not some weakness in them, apart from just a sinful nature to begin with. Can you imagine if you could walk into Via Christi or any other hospital around town and, and, and heal people in the name of Jesus and they would get up from beds and be healed? Can you imagine how prideful it would be to get real quick? I mean, am I the only one who thinks that might happen to me? And, and so Jesus' response then tells them about the downfall of prideful Satan, Right? The first words out of his mouth, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And then in verse 19, see what Jesus says here. Look at this. He says, I have given you authority. You see that contrast? The, 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 the power and uh, that they are sub, the demons are subject to us, right? And, and I have given you that authority. What, you see, what they're saying here is, is look what we can do. And Jesus is reminding them, I gave you that power. I'm why you can do that. And Jesus goes further, doesn't he? And he's saying, listen, yes, I've given you power, but, but don't rejoice in the power I've given you. Rejoice in the salvation I've obtained for you. Salvation and authority and success and ministry, in other words, cannot be our primary joy. It cannot be. And so when Jesus says here in verse 20, do, do not rejoice over this success. It's, it's not about crushing their joy. It's about changing their focus to a proper joy, a better source of joy. And so Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And suddenly their focus changes, right? Right? That's a common biblical image that Jesus uses there. It's often referred to as the book of life. Um, this book is referenced in Exodus 32, 31, and 33, uh, as well as Daniel 12. In Philippians 4, 3, the Apostle Paul mentions this list of, uh, of fellow believers, and then he refers to them as those whose names are written in the book of life. Again, the last book of the Scriptures, Revelation 13, 8, tells us that the names of God's people were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. 
You see, to have our names written in the book of life means that we are citizens in the kingdom of God. It means that we are known by the eternal king and that we belong to him. So Christian, listen, your, your, your spiritual and your ministry success, along with all other successes that you can possibly have, are all absolutely inferior to the God's grace and all that he has accomplished for you. Inferior. You know, we don't deserve grace, right? I know that's one of those things we think is a downer thing. It's not a downer thing. It's a reality thing to begin with. We, we don't deserve grace. In fact, that's precisely what grace is. God has done it for us. That we are, you know, we are simply unworthy of receiving it, and yet we receive it. That's grace. And again, don't, don't hang your head at that like we tend to do. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. I, you know, I asked you how you measure success as a Christian. And Jesus here is teaching us that there is something more important than success. Our success, right? Even ministry success. Redemption is more important than that. And so yeah, we, 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 we can rejoice in, in this way even in the midst of all sorts of failures. In the summer of 2017, I, I shared a quote in a sermon on Psalm 73. And at the time, uh, I, I went home and I wrote the quote on the chalkboard in our living room. And it's been there ever since. So it's been a couple years now, still written there in the same handwriting. Um, if you've ever been over to our house, you probably have noticed it. And the quote's from a guy named uh, Leon Bloy. And he uses the word saint in this quote in, in the sense of scripture, in the sense of a Christian, right? Um, and, and he says this, the only real sadness... The only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. And the opposite is also true. The only real success in life is to have your name written in the book of life. So yes, we rejoice in many things. We rejoice when we find love and marry. We rejoice at the birth of your children and rejoice when the when sick are healed. And we rejoice when we taste creme brulee for the first time in our life. And, you know, we're rejoicing yesterday, most of us, as K-State beat the Sooners, right? But none of these rejoicings are our foundational joys. Let our foundational joy be in the simple fact that we are truly, truly deserving of death and wrath and hell. And yet if your faith is in Christ, then your name is written in the book of life. You're a child of God with an eternal home. You're, you're a citizen of heaven with an eternal king. You're a body and a soul that is redeemed forever, no matter what else goes on in your life. Write that truth someplace, you'll see it often. It might not mean much to you right now, but when you are, you're struggling in some way or when you're succeeding in some way, this is something we need to see. You know, Write it on your mirror. My name is written in the book of life. Or, or hang a note by your, book, by your bed that says, you know, Jesus, redeem me, or something like that. Because it is a powerful reality as we seek to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever as we walk through life. So now we've still got four verses to get to today. So let's go ahead and read the next two. So Luke 10, verses 21 and 22. <clears throat> in that same hour, he, that's Jesus, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, who it, uh, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And we'll stop right there for now. So, so then you get in this, right? Not, not long after, G- Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And it, and it may surprise us here to find out that this is the only place in all of the Scripture that we, we see a recording that Jesus is rejoicing. It's the only place. And the Greek word that Luke, Luke uses here is, is actually a different word than the rejoice that we were seeing in the previous verses leading up to it. This one's uh, more intense is really what it's about. Uh, it, it's this exuberant joy. It's, it's the kind of joy you just can't keep quiet about, right? You can't keep it to yourself. It's, it's really the kind of joy that makes sense when you realize this, the, <clears throat> that this is the, a Trinitarian joy, right? You, you see all the Trinity here in this, this passage, right? We, we, we see Jesus the Son is rejoicing. And he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And, and as he's doing so, he's praying to God the Father. And, and this is the kind of rejoicing we see here. And, and then, <clears throat> what was Jesus so exuberantly joyful about? And this, this might surprise you. Um, so let's just look at it. What's he excited about? Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Did you catch what that's about? Jesus is rejoicing in what's often called the doctrine of election. Jesus is rejoicing that God truly reveals the gospel and thus salvation only to some people while hiding it to other people, which is weird, isn't it? Since, since Christians today typically squirm at the doctrine of election, or at least have some weird feeling towards it, right? Uh, I had a senior in high school, I was telling John about this the other day, uh, once told me, I, I, I see it in the Bible. This is after like eight years of denying it was in the Bible. I see it in the Bible, but I don't like it. It makes some of us uncomfortable, and yet... Here's our Savior rejoicing at this, rejoicing at it, not apologetic or embarrassed or somehow trying to, you know, do PR on this, but rejoicing in it. We should be more like Jesus in our attitude towards election because it further displays just how incredible the grace of God really is. Jesus says to the Father, right, praying these things, he says, thank you for you have hidden these things. Hiding is active here. God is actively hiding these things from, as our text says, those who are wise and understanding. Now, don't misunderstand that. Jesus is not anti-intellectual here. He's not anti-people having knowledge, right? We come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? That's part of faith, right? Um, One of the beautiful realities of the gospel is, is that both the uneducated and Mensa geniuses both believe the exact same gospel wholeheartedly. It's not an issue of intelligence. The wise and the understanding that Jesus refers to here are those who trust in worldly wisdom to the point of being pridefully blind to the truth of the scriptures. Because God's word is spiritually discerned. It may help to think of it this way. Um, 
The, the opposite of wise and understanding here is not foolish and ignorant, but humble, the humble. He's talking about the, the individual who, who says, if anything is left to mystery, anything that I can't comprehend and explain completely, then I simply will not believe. And to that person, the gospel is hidden. And this is not the only place in the scriptures that we see this. The Apostle Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, um, just listen, uh, you can go there later if you want, it's a little bit long, but let me read it to you. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. And so Jesus is rejoicing with the Holy Spirit because of the way that God brings about salvation of his people in the world. And as Jesus says, God has revealed the gospel to little children. Right? The rattlesnakes, you don't literally do that. The little children, it means something here. In the immediate context, he's talking about his disciples in general. It's, it's those who, who, who know they don't know everything, right? Like little children. Those who believe on faith, not, not absolutely knowledge. Those who, you know, like a daughter who trusts her father with eyes of faith, we must also trust our Heavenly Father with eyes of faith. And, and the clear meaning of all this is that there are, are some who God hides salvation from and others whom it is revealed to so that they repent of their sins and they trust in Jesus. And in other words, you, you look around this room. This room is filled with a variety of IQs. We have some really, really smart people in this congregation. And uh, there are people with very little education, very little intellectual knowledge. Uh, I won't point anyone out, right? Or even suspicions. Um, the point is, you have this huge variety, and not a single one of us came to believe Jesus is the Messiah because of our intellectual abilities. You received the gospel of Jesus as a gift, as a gracious gift from God the Father. Philip Riken shares a story about a woman named Dr. Eta. How would you pronounce that? Etta? Etta? Anyone's guess is as good as mine, I guess. I could just go with it. Uh, anyway, her name's Dr. Etta Lindman, uh, who was at one point a, a liberal theologian who studied under a well-known biblical critic named Rudolf Boltman. Uh, and she said, uh, as she did her, her studies in, in textual criticism, right, critiquing the Bible uh, uh, scripture, uh, and she said it only led to emptiness. And she shares about her story. It led to addictions in her life. It led to absolute uh, hopelessness in her life. Uh, but then she found the grace of God and she stopped critiquing the scriptures and she began to simply believe them and to love Jesus. And as she recounted this massive change in her life that affected her career and so many other aspects of her life, she, she said this, By God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and he began to transform it radically. Now, Dr. Lindman spoke at Westminster Seminary in the early 90s. You can see this a while back. And, and when she was asked, 
what had someone in this audience actually asked this question, what had brought about this huge change in your life and your theology? And, and she seemed almost astonished at the question to begin with, right? And, and she just replies simply, why, I became a child of God. That's what changed. It was the grace of God giving her faith to believe. Now, now listen, by, by the grace of God, the, the Holy Spirit um, plainly reveals these same profound mysteries to humble sinners who come to God with, with nothing except their need of Him to begin with. So if, if not already, that, that might mean you. In other words, you're neither too intelligent nor too ignorant to believe the gospel. Uh, you know, so put your faith in Jesus where you can find rest for your soul. Now, we've got two more verses today, and these will go a lot quicker than the first six. Um, to follow along as I read verses 23 and 24 here. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see this joyous benediction to this portion builds on the joy of salvation. Has it ever occurred to you what a blessing it is to live where you live in history? Like this time period, right? Um, <clears throat> to live on this side of the cross. So to know the things that you know, right? Because the Old Testament saints, you know, are, are saved by faith also. But the, their faith was that God would send a Redeemer and redeem them. It was a, a more vague understanding that God would indeed send a Messiah. But we actually live in a time period where we know the Messiah's name. Where we can pray specifically to the Messiah. Where we believe, you know, by faith in Christ and the testimony of the, the scriptures that we are working through even this morning. And as well as the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> for all that we, we don't know about eternity, right? There's a whole lot of mystery uh, when it comes to that. The, the gospel is fully revealed to us. It's not a mystery. And so Jesus is reminding his disciples here that, that they have experienced with their own eyes that the things that Abraham and Moses, that the things that Elijah and Isaiah, the things that David and Jeremiah could, could only look forward to with faith. The, these disciples enjoy Jesus in person. That they've witnessed what was written in the prophets actually come true. Right? It's kind of like someday there's going to be Christians... When Christ returns at that moment, who get to witness everything that comes true. We, we too, right? But not coming from this perspective of life as we know it. Um, okay, so where does all this leave us? Um, for, first is this. If your faith is in Jesus, then rejoice in God's gracious election of your soul. You can't feel guilty for that. You can rejoice in that. You can rejoice knowing that's God's design. You can rejoice that you're truly not deserving of it. And God's grace in you has called you to him, okay? You can rejoice in that. You know, there's nothing else you can rejoice in in regards to. It's not your intellect. You didn't come up with this. You're not smarter than the guy next to you. It's the grace of God if you believe the gospel. Um, you have what you do, don't deserve. Uh, rejoice in that, but, 
But dwell on that. If you've never taken the time to just dwell on that, do. Because you, you see the glory of God. There's a thankfulness that grows out of that. Uh, second, and this one's related to the first one, don't become prideful when you experience ministry success. Right? Even small ones, right? You, know, you ever come home from some interaction with someone and be, 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 on, be aware of that, right? Um, the flip side also, right? Don't become depressed or bitter when you see someone else experiencing ministry success. But, but rejoice in the simple but glorious reality that because of Jesus, your name is written in the book of life. But lastly, if you don't know Jesus, know that you, again, are not too smart and you're not too dumb to do so, right? To, to trust in him. And so I, I would encourage you to, to humbly pray to God and, and ask him to reveal himself to you in the Holy Scriptures. All right, so that, that finishes up this week. Next week, we're going to be uh, in the story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you're more familiar with that one. Uh, so if you get a chance this week, go ahead and read ahead, verses uh, 29 through 37, and, and we'll come back together and we'll, we'll unpack God's word together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord of heaven and earth, we who believe thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We, we thank you for eyes to see and ears to hear. And the truth that Jesus is our glorious Messiah, our Savior. We, we thank you for times of fruitful ministry to others. Not, not just as a church, but as we minister to children and neighbors and family and friends, co-workers. And Lord, we ask that you would give us fruitful ministry. And yet we ask that you would clothe us always with humility. Knowing that it's you who does it. More than anything, Lord, we thank you for writing our names in the book of life. Lord, for those who don't see this, who don't hear your call, whose names are not in the book of life that we know and we're praying for and we care about and are here with us today, we ask that you would bring about transformation in them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.